Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. I'm excited to, um, for you to hear from her today. This is Cassie Fothergill. So if you would join me in prayer, we're going to pray for her and turn it over to her. Father, we're so thankful that, that Cassie is able to be with us today. And Father, we're asking you to speak through her. We're asking you to give us ears to hear what you want to say to us through her. And God, would you help us to, to put into practice what you revealed to us today? Um, I just pray for wisdom and discernment for Cassie and for courage and all the things that she needs to be able to get through what you have given her in her study. So we thank you for her and pray for her together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Thank you for having me. I feel like we should do the uh, thing like Paul does and say greetings from the other group. Like, I don't know. I really do wish you could see them, though. The Wednesday morning group, there is, there is something really beautiful and sweet about 25 to 30 of those women meeting together. And uh, I'll tell you, they are, in their wisdom of years and experience, they are the most gospel-centered group that I've ever been a part of. We'll be on some rabbit trail in the scriptures, and every time another one of the women from across the table will say, but Jesus, and then we get right back to where we need to be. So I'm glad that uh, I can share a little bit about them with you, and then the same next week I'll share with them about you guys too. So uh, today we're going to look at another of the arguments in the book of Hebrews um, that the writer uses to prove to us and the Hebrew people, of course, that Jesus is better. Last week we heard from Patty Lynn and we learned about Jesus being better than Moses. And then the week before that, of course, Amy speaking on Jesus is better than the angels. So today we're going to address Jesus as a better high priest. So I want to... um, encourage you to take notes in a new way today. So this is a little bit of a format that um, I'm a school teacher by trade. So I've always, I'm always thinking in that kind of light. So this is a note-taking ta- note strategy that's um, a way to have active listening. And active listening, I've always thought when I do it in the classroom, I think how cool to do active listening at, at church because At church, here in this realm, we know that you are listening not just to your inner voice, but to the Holy Spirit. So this technique is just a way to pose questions to help you organize your notes. If you're like me, sometimes you're taking notes at a sermon, and do you ever get irritated that you have 0.5, but your paper, you run out of paper? Okay, good, thanks. Me too. So this also gives you a guideline of how to write. So we're going to address these four questions today. How did Jesus resist temptation? How did Jesus suffer? How is he made perfect? And how is he the cure for our dullness? So as you're kind of aligning your paper, you certainly, if you love linear notes and you'd rather write up and down, you don't have to do this, but it gives you four spaces to consider these questions with this central idea of beckoning. Um, So we'll address this, but I kind of want to leave this question up to you. As you listen to these four points, I want you to consider what does that have to do with the word beckoning again and again and again as we go through those things, and we'll try to tie it all together. I really prayed a lot about how can these things have some central uh, meaning for us as we study this section of Scripture. All right, I'll give you a little bit of time to get those ready. And then we'll begin. Does it, you want me to leave the notes up a little longer? I'll talk a little more. 
So uh, the act of listening that we teach kids in school, some of you I know are school teachers too, but this act of listening is more of a proposing a question. So the idea that you are assimilating information. You have some information from your small groups. You have some information from your independent work at home, some information that I speak and provide to you, that, that that's going to work together with the power of the Holy Spirit within you to answer these questions. And as you think about, I almost made a word bank, but I thought that would be too teachery. But like maybe some other words to go in besides better. When we say the answers to questions like how did he resist temptation, maybe some other adjectives like superior or finer or greater come to mind and maybe not just the word better. So I encourage you to think a little more broadly as you address the questions as well. All right, I'm going to read to you the beginning of the text today, the end of chapter 4. And I think if you need me to go back, I really will. But it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So in addressing this first idea of how was it that Jesus resisted temptation, we know that Jesus was God made in human form and he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows the enticing of the evil one. He experienced the ways in which the world tries to lure us away from righteousness. But I might argue so did the high priests of the time, right? They knew. They knew what it was like to be tempted. Uh, Maybe even so did the women here sitting next to you. We know. So what was it about Jesus that made him better at knowing um, what it's like to resist temptation? I found a really neat quote I'd like to share with you that kind of talks about that. What makes Jesus better at knowing? And it's from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says this, Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. And I think this is certainly true when I think about my own rejection of temptation. I would say it's hard for me to think of very many instances where I looked to temptation dead in the face, right, and, and completely resisted it. Um, my avoidance of sin looks a little bit more like we do when we're at a party and a social gathering and you need to excuse yourself from a conversation. I feel like that's what it looks like when I'm avoiding sin. Or maybe um, like in the grocery store and you see someone coming, right, and you don't want to talk because you didn't fix your hair. You hide, right? I feel like this maybe, this maybe is more like what it is when I say no to temptation. Or, or sometimes I feel kind of just like a Pharisee or a Sadducee and, and my avoidance of temptation is just to build up a lot of protective barriers. So I think very unlike Christ would be the way that I would say that I resist temptation. Um, The best that I've seen or an example that really came to mind when I thought about somebody battling temptation minute by minute, day by day, is um, to think about someone, if you know, like me, uh, somebody in your life whom you love dearly that is battling addiction, right? So it's kind of not the perfect example, but... um, 
because there's lots of things, of course, in substance abuse and addiction that are not the same. But I feel like for me a little bit, watching this person that I love every day, because that's what he says, you know, he says every day it's there, every day. And I always think and admire the way that you have to press in, the way that you have to, to say no again and again. And to me, something that I don't have to do, but that that would be sort of the same way. Uh, Jesus is a better high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he lived his entire earthly life resisting every temptation. He knows the battle because he fought it all the way to the cross. He knows because while he was there on the cross, he experienced the full weight and pain of the sin of all mankind. Jesus knows better. And because of that, that's why we hear this at the end of the passage, that he's, he's beckoning us, right, to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Confidence that only can be found when we fully understand or try to understand what it's like to resist temptation in that way. So here at the end of that little first little square on your paper, you think, maybe consider, reflect upon, assimilate those ideas from personal study and group time and those words we heard from C.S. Lewis. How was it that Jesus was better able to resist temptation? really supposed to answer the question. And then we'll move on to the second one. So how did Jesus suffer? So we move on into chapter 5. Those first three verses of chapter 5 say this. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. As we look a little bit more at that second question and we think about how Jesus is different from the high priest in regards to sacrifice, we read in the section of the text that the high priests in the Hebrew community were appointed by God and that they completed the task of offering sacrifices on behalf of the people of God. It required them to first offer sacrifices as an offering for their own sins before offering sacrifices for others. But even in this job description of a high priest, we see the difference between the priests and Jesus. They had that great chart in our homework, right? Unlike the priest, Jesus would not need to sacrifice for sins to appear before God the Father. Unlike the priest, Jesus need not search for the spotless lamb because Jesus was the lamb. Some more information here when we consider how did Jesus suffer um, I really like the sentence, this, that we know is true, but it's so beautiful to claim once again that he didn't offer sacrifices because he was the sacrifice. What a stark difference when we think about this question. In Romans 3, um, there's a really great section of text. I had to put um, some abbreviated parts there, but I'll read it to you in full as you think about the suffering of Christ it says this in Romans chapter 3, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who is faith in Jesus. So the scripture tells us about the atoning sacrifice of Christ. This, 
sacrifice sent by God to remove the sins of the world across all time. It addresses this past, present, future weight of sin, the enormity of the sin across all time. Um, Unlike the sacrifices presented before the coming of Christ that had to be repeated, the sacrifice of Jesus covers all the sin. And this is what makes Jesus the perfect or ultimate sacrifice. It's also what makes his suffering greater. So consider then maybe those words on what you would say is different or how is Jesus suffering different from ours as you maybe reflect a bit in that square. I want to give you an example of some hope and suffering as we wrap up this second point. This is my sweet friend Carrie Norman and her baby Axton. Um, They're from here. I don't know if you've seen this at all on social media, but um, it's pretty recent that... um, her baby's been diagnosed with cancer, and they're in Fort Worth, the Ronald McDonald House, um, right now as they're seeking treatment. Um, But her testimony is so real and honest in her suffering um, that she's able to speak the truth of knowing God in a more personal way and her reliance on Christ in a time of suffering that I wanted to share it with you. I just tried to clip one of the many things that she said on social media, but if you look down there a little bit, it says... um, She was talking about reading in her devotion and having time to read. Um, And then at the end, she says, I know this, that God is speaking to me. I have never felt his presence the way I do now. I can't even put into words what it feels like, but it's amazing. And she put hashtag he is bigger, hashtag my comforter, hashtag by faith and not sight. So I think that it's this superiority of Christ's suffering that helps her feel this way, right? That that he does know, um, that she feels the beckoning of Christ even in the worst moments in her life because she knows who to turn to. We talked about at our table that when you have those experiences of suffering, we, we look for those human connections of people who, who've been through the same thing, right? We want to know somebody who knows. And then ultimately, we know that our Savior is the one who really knows the best. When we think about the enormity of suffering that he experienced, he certainly is the one who beckons us to draw near. And I, I would ask you to consider her in your prayers as you, as you move about. Sweet baby Axton there. He's three. He's sweet. All right. You guys ready to move on into your third little box? Your reflection here... How is Jesus made perfect? We'll consider maybe some new thinking. It's definitely one that I, that I struggle with a bit. How is he made perfect? Isn't he perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? So let's talk about that. I'll start by reading um, verse 7 through 10 is the part we'll, we'll pick up with our um, scripture from today. It says this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So this language of Jesus learning obedience or being made perfect through suffering can cause confusion, at least for me. For most of us, we read texts like this in Hebrews and we think those thoughts like, well, wasn't he perfect, born that way? Why did Jesus have to learn obedience? Didn't he already know how to obey? 
We're prone to consider ourselves, or I am, or our children, when we think of Jesus's human qualities, that in order to obey, we must learn from disobedience, or in order to be moved towards perfection, we have to understand imperfection. But I think here we can consider Jesus, who for a while, like we read earlier in the text of Hebrews, was a little lower than the angels, right? Um, a different way for Jesus to learn obedience and be made perfect through suffering. There was a teaching that I heard when I was kind of wrestling with this from John Piper, and I'll share this with you too, to, as just something to consider um, on what it was like for Christ to be made perfect. In one of John Piper's sermons, here's what he says. He says, in this instance, here being made perfect means learning obedience through suffering. This doesn't mean that he was once disobedient and then became obedient. It means that Jesus moved from untested obedience into suffering and then through suffering into tested and proved obedience. And this proving himself obedient through suffering was his being perfected. So I began to think on these words a little bit and think um, of a new way of considering Christ's perfection, Christ's learning obedience. Um, in the same sermon, John Piper talks about the divine plan of God to, to bring Jesus this way in infanthood, to bring him, you know, knowing nothing. Um, and I think that it's a beautiful way to consider God's plan in this, in this way. I was telling the group that I kind of worked on another analogy for myself to, to think about this being made perfect or learning obedience. And as a math teacher, this idea of a number line came to mind and so if you can imagine with me the number line at zero, and then all the numbers moving towards the left, right, to the negative and the right, the positive, um, that, you know, born, being born into the world, you're pretty much a zero, right? You're starting there. And it helped me to consider then that this moving on, this learning that Christ did, was just like a human baby, right? This learning, this practicing, but it was all in the positive direction. And then I considered my own self or maybe my kids learning and that they maybe would learn a little bit to the negative, a little bit to the positive. So I don't even know if that makes sense. I'm just sharing some thinking for, for that helped me to consider um, how beautiful it is to know the truth that he was made perfect, that he learned obedience through suffering. Um, this scripture and teaching maybe can bring comfort to you. God's design to send Jesus as fully human and fully divine was for your good. Your suffering is teaching you obedience and surrender and trust, and it's moving you towards perfection. And although perfection is not for us to achieve on this side of glory, glory is attainable for us through faith in Christ Jesus. Our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus clothes us in the righteousness of our Savior. And it reminded me of the text in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, and it says, It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So maybe you have lingering questions like me. I feel like we could have a whole study on just this one thing. So your box there, your reflective piece on your notes is for those questions. You don't have to always answer, right? Maybe there's a lingering question you had or some new thoughts that you have on how Jesus was made perfect in our section of text. And then we'll move on a little bit more into this last part. Amy and I teased that we couldn't decide, she's next week, I think, who, who, gets, the, who gets this little portion of text because it is a neat portion. So um, 
before the author of Hebrews can conclude this line of reasoning that he's, he's putting in his letter, right? He comes to this point in the text where he's pausing to give this great exhortation to the people. He almost, it's almost like he's calling time out, right? Throwing the flag, whatever that you might do and say, um, I, guys, I don't think this is really going well. I'm gonna have to stop. I don't even think you're gonna be able to understand because you've become dull of hearing. He writes this. We've much to say about this, but it's hard to explain, for you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil." I feel like this is the name calling. Almost at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, you can tell something's wrong, right? You can tell we want to know more about these people and what were their struggles, like what's really going on, what's the author really trying to address. But I think in this instance, it's pretty serious name calling, right? Um, in the middle school world, my other world, this is called casting shade. Anybody heard this? Who has a middle schooler or a high schooler? Yes. So you can be shady if you name call. That's a thing. You can throw shade, I think. Sometimes I use it wrong. Go home and try it with your young kids tonight. And they'll laugh. If you want to get the eye roll, like definitely do it. Or sometimes they say, um, oh, miss, that's salty. Have you heard this too? Salty. Salty means that you're, yeah, so I'm teaching all these great things, right? Um, salty is also casting shade or name calling. Anyway, the author here has kind of put a name to maybe one of the problems in the text, right? Dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. I was really interested in this term, so I did the, like, looking up in several versions. I, this is the only word that I did some uh, research on, like, in the Greek. So the Greek word is notros. So that word has a couple of layers of meaning. Um, slow moving in mind, lethargic in understanding, dull of hearing, this one hurt me a little bit, witlessly forgetful, right? Yeah, I felt that one pretty good. Um, the writer of Hebrews really is the only one that uses this particular word in the New Testament scripture. He uses it twice. Um, I guess, is this you? Six, chapter six. Amy has it again in chapter six when he says sluggish. He says, we'll get to this next week, so that you may not become sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Um, what I want to point out that in this word study that I learned, that it wasn't that the people were unintelligent. It doesn't mean dull like what we might think dull, like somebody who's unable to learn. Um, this is more of complacent and lazy and witlessly forgetful, right? This is more the, the idea that the author's trying to call them out on. Um, dull of hearing is a signal, maybe that the Hebrews have lost their fear, their godly fear of the penalty of sin, the fear of the consequence of their unholiness has lost its weight. So to me, this one was the hardest hitting one, right? Complacency. Um, you maybe like me have gotten used to something. I, my one example is getting used to uh, driving over the dam in Belton. Years ago, when I first moved out that way and I had to drive over the dam, I had car seats at the time, and so I guess I was more fearful at driving, but I would white-knuckle my way back and forth over the dam every time. I felt the fear, and one day I realized I'm not afraid anymore. Like, I was just happy. I'm like, oh, look, I made it across the dam, not actually imagining my car tumbling. 
over the edge, right? Um, so I felt really good about that. But in the same regard, I recognize that this happens to us, right? We can get complacent. We can get used to the things of our routine. We can get used to the, even to the blessings that we have, kind of like getting used to the blessing of driving over the dam. Do you ever correct yourself even at that moment too and say, look, we live at a place that has that beautiful sight, look. Like sometimes I even just forget to look. But this is a very like surface level complacency. If we go deeper into these ideas of spiritual complacency, um, I think that you'll see a little bit more. See if I got to the right slide here. Okay. So the book of Eli. Who's seen this movie? have you? Okay. You really, I don't even know if I'd recommend it unless you owe your husband like four or five romantic comedies. Like it's that intense. <laughs> I mean, like if, you, if you're like negative on the romantic comedy side that much, then maybe watch it. It is violent and there's cursing. Um, but the premise of the movie, is anybody like super offended about spoilers? If you are, sorry. Um, but the premise of this movie is about that man. That's the main character. His name's Eli. And he is guarding the last copy of Scripture. Um, I thought about it when I was thinking about complacency because there is this point in the movie, this heroine like, comes alongside, a traveling companion comes alongside him. But he is trying to outrun the bad guys. I hope my husband doesn't ever watch this. He would say I'm butchering the whatever. The idea of the movie. Anyway, you've got good guys and bad guys, right? So he's protecting the last copy of the Word of God. He has the Bible. The bad guys know that they want the Bible because somehow, even though they don't know what it contains, they know its power and truth. And so this is post-apocalyptic like times. Okay, so now that I've done an awful job telling you this, I want you to know that there's a time that he's speaking of the Bible in the movie, and he says this to the young girl. He says, in all these years, I've been carrying it and reading it every day, and I got so caught up in keeping it safe that I forgot to live by what I learned from it, right? So even in this movie, there's truth being, being spoken that reaches us in that place of complacency. We are so used to the things we are so used to it that sometimes we forget, just like he said, we forget what it means. We forget to live by it. And I think in this scene, I didn't even rewatch it, but I think in this scene right after that, he tells her um, the golden rule or he like talks about love neighbors or something. And this is what, um, what they're talking of in this scene. All right. I relate well to this scene. I wrote this because Eli isn't lazy. He's the opposite of lazy. If you watch the action adventure here, he is not bored. He is busy. He's fighting, just like I feel like. Like sometimes it's not that we're sitting around. Obviously, we're not just sitting around on, in hammocks. But we, the complacency is something even greater than physical action. Um, this is dull. The very meaning of the text he is protecting because he's distracted by the world, in this case, some violence, but nonetheless. Okay. So this is me doing a really bad thing, but this is the best part of the movie. Right? Who's seen it? Yeah. I won't even tell the whole thing. I will tell just enough for you to get the greatness of what's happened here. So um, the bad guys lose. They're duped by Eli because they actually get the text. And for a reason that I won't say, because that is the cool part, they can't read it. So nobody, they can't find anybody who can actually read it, even though they now possess the book. And so... 
The great part that I'm definitely spoiling for you is he finally makes his way to safety. So does the young girl. And he's lying there. And right here, he begins in Genesis 1. And he recites the whole Bible. Isn't that cool? So the, the word of God did change even this movie character. It was that powerful. But isn't that a really... So if you're interested, there's the end. Don't tell your husband I told you the ending. But I like this... I like this conviction of dullness. In fact, I'm really glad that it was in this section of text I was called to teach because I've been thinking a lot the past couple weeks about complacency and dullness and how we get used to things just because they're good, right? Because we're good and safe. So I would argue here, if you're on your last little square, that um, what is the cure for our dullness? Well, that Christ himself is the cure for our dullness because the gospel is life-giving. When we consider um, what it is that the gospel gives us, it can stir us out of complacency in a moment, in a thought. Um, A little later in Hebrews 10, it says this, Since we have such a great high priest, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together. Let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So what are we to do when we find our faith dull and sluggish? When we find ourselves witlessly forgetful of what was done on our behalf on the cross? Well, we ask God to renew in us the joy of our salvation. We draw near to God. I love the exhortations here in Hebrews 10 that are terrific ways to help us direct our gaze back to this thing, uh, back to the cross, back to our Savior, Um, I have a friend who's my spurrer. You can think of your friend who may be your spurring person. Uh, My spurring person is named Jackie, and her classroom's right next door to mine. And Jackie and I have three-minute conversations, really, because our passing period is four minutes. And so we stand out in the hall and tell middle schoolers not to hug except sideways, right? (laughs) And go to class. Don't touch each other. Um, So in the middle of that chaos, and it's loud, she can use three minutes to get me back to the foot of the cross every time. She'll say something like, isn't it great that God has enough mercy for this? Or um, even a correction to me or something. But she can every time, just in this short amount of time, she doesn't really, we don't do any casual conversation. She just goes right there. Boom, here I am. And once again, I'm bringing you Jesus, and, Jesus and, and she can do it even in the midst of this chaos. Um, earlier this week, I asked her, I said, Jackie, you want to take a picture with me? Because um, I was thinking of putting you in my talk and to tell people that you're the person that spurs me on. And, and she said, well, sure. And she said, but don't you have the picture that we took um, earlier this year? We took a cute little picture. And I said, you mean the one where I'm wearing a costume? And she said, yeah, that one. And I said, no, let's take one look. I look, I fixed my hair today. I'm <laughs> like, cute. And uh, so even right then, you know what she said? She said, well, maybe this is a great way to conquer vanity. And I thought, oh, I turned it off. Look, what did I do? Did I push it again? Oh, I got it. So I was Mary Poppins that day. I can't even remember why. I think we had to dress up. But I didn't want to show you Mary Poppins, but I wanted to show you Jackie. 
because I want you to have the person and I want you to be the person um, that is bold enough. Honestly, if you are already a professing Christian, people already know you're crazy. I'll just be honest with you. Um, so it's okay to not have casual all the time, to go right in for the, for the life-giving truth of the gospel, to remind somebody what's real. It's okay. You're protected, right? Okay, enough of Mary Poppins. But you, I wanted to show you video, but that's not allowed either because I wanted you to see the hallway. You can kind of see a little bit. It's crazy. Okay, I want you to think seriously, though, about getting um, to the center of this. So when I prayed for God to reveal to me how, because, you know, in preparing, all of these things could be in themselves, like, Little sermons are separate, but I was looking for what was the connection. What did God really have to say that all of these things were together? And time and time again, what I began to hear um, was God saying, come, come. And so this word beckoning began to weigh heavy on my heart. I want you to think about what it is to beckon. It's a gesture of hand, right? So there's all kinds of ways. Some, if you're mad at your kid, you do this beckoning, right? Or, you know, there's things that you can do to ask people to draw near to you. I think the sweet one, we talked about at our table too this morning, the sweet one is the hurt child, right? The, the bending down, the stooping low, the outstretched hands, and you're just begging your child to come to you. I will fix it. Come here. Come here and let mommy make it better. Um, all of these kinds of ideas I kept hearing again and again, and I want you to consider hearing them in each of those four questions. Um, because I would have times where I would think, I'm a hot mess. God, I, I did this again. I spoke with selfish desire. I did not resist temptation in the way, you know, we have this daily thing that happens. But um, I began to hear each time I have those thoughts, Jesus saying, I know, I know, right? I know, so come. And the same thing, even if we address that second question of suffering, if it hurts too much, it's too much to bear. You know, sometimes when your child is really hurt, you can't get them up. You're just saying, come on, get up, let's go. I feel that same way sometimes in the midst of suffering, like it's just too much to bear, God, I can't. And he says, I know. Jesus says, I know, come to me. I know, draw near in the midst of suffering. Or if we think of that third thing of, uh, you know, how we're considering even um, being made perfect. I find myself again and again, self-righteous, full of rebellion. And Jesus says, you know what? Obedience and discernment can be learned. They can be learned. Come to me and I'll show you, right? You hear it again, even in that question. Or, or maybe like we said, worst of all, I find myself dull or complacent, um, doing good, but outside the will of God making my own way, neglecting time spent with the one who loves me most. But even in that moment, I hear the beckoning of Christ, come near, come near. He stooped low with his hands open. My daughter chose this last picture. I think it's beautiful, of Jesus' hands. So the beckoning of Christ. So please let that maybe weigh in with you this week as you move forward, as you address any of those things that we talked about today. I think, that's what, I think that's what God intended when he sent Jesus the way that he did, the time that he did, with the purpose that he did, is so that Jesus can say, I know, because God who loves you more than anything already knew too, right? Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for um, the truth in your word. Thank you for the fellowship of our sisters in Christ. Thank you, Father, for beckoning us. 
for beckoning us to draw near to you, God. Thank you for Jesus, for the great love that you have for us, for making a way for us, Father. Help us to feel that so deeply this morning and be so compelled, God, by this love that all we can do is share it with others. God, give us courage to stir one another up. God, give us courage to stand firm. And God, give us courage to come to you when you beckon. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.